the accounts of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening of one cubit, high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath breath in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, and you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mates, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mates, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that was commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth for forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, Ham, and Japheth, along with his wife and the sons of the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every kind of wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living kind, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the floods kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the waters. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, 
wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and the entire human race. Everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Human beings and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that as we think about uh, this serious event in the history of our world uh, where you wiped out so many people uh, and so many living things, Lord, we ask that you would help us to come to grips with that that, uh, and to understand your purposes uh, and to understand your desire uh, to uh, begin all things anew. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the uh, story of uh, Noah and the Ark is one of those stories, I think, that if you grew up anywhere close to a Christian home, you probably would have learned. Uh, I remember my niece used to have a little plastic ark with all the animals, uh, and, and, but I always used to call the guy with the beard Moses by mistake. And uh, my sister-in-law would always go, no, Carl, it's Noah in the Ark, not Moses in the Ark. That was while I was studying it at Bible college, somewhat disturbingly, but... Uh, you just see a guy with a beard, don't you? And you think, it's got, it's got, to, be, uh, it's got to be Moses. But it wasn't, it was Noah. Uh, but it's one of those stories, isn't it, that every child learns. Uh, and even if you didn't learn it when you were growing up, uh, you can't uh, help but have noticed it last year with uh, the release of Darren Aronofsky's uh, film Noah, with uh, Russell Crowe playing the, uh, the lead role. But for most people... Films and kids' stories is kind of where the Noah story stays. Sometimes we don't think about it in any great detail. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about what God was doing when he rescued Noah and sent the great flood. We we just imagine the story to be just that, a story maybe. Sometimes people don't think about the the flood story because they're sceptical about the idea of a massive flood destroying the earth. I don't want to uh, spend a huge amount of time talking about whether the flood happened or not this morning, but I think before we get into what the purpose of the flood was, it's useful to say just a few things for those people who may be kind of a little bit sceptical about the idea. Uh, Two things, really. First it's worth pointing out that there's a a surprising number of records from different civilizations of a massive flood. So many civilizations have a kind of story like that. Aboriginal tribes, for instance, have, depending on the language group, uh, often they have different flood stories. Uh, One famous example is uh, something called the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, and it dates from around 1600 BC, and it tells the story of a massive a cataclysmic flood. Last year, uh, another flood story was discovered by an uh, expert from the British Museum whose name was Irving Finkel. He was uh, flabbergasted to discover on one of the tablets a reference to animals going into the ark two by two. So there's, first of all, there's evidence 
reasonable historical evidence from outside the Bible as to the historical plausibility of uh, a major flood event. Second, uh, it's worth saying that compared to the other accounts, the Bible's account of the flood is pretty sensible. What's interesting is that the boat that Noah builds is a very sensibly shaped boat. Naval architects have actually modelled the shape of different hulls and they discovered that if you're trying to build a kind of a floating warehouse like Noah did, you couldn't go much past the shape and the size that that Noah built. If you uh, contrast that with the ark from the Epic of Gilgamesh, that's a giant cube which isn't even remotely stable. I don't know, you might like to go home and try that, to build a giant cube and try floating it and see what happens. And the story from Finkel's tablet, uh, the ark in that story was a round ark, not a particularly stable shape either. As I said, I don't really want to spend a lot of time thinking about whether the ark story is historically plausible, but I, I guess what I want to say is, look, there's good evidence for thinking that it is a plausible account. There's evidence outside the Bible and the the account itself is a remarkably sensible account. So there's some pretty sound reasons, in other words, to take this story seriously. But that aside then, uh, why did the flood happen? What is God trying to tell us? What was God trying to tell Noah and the people of his day uh, in this great event? Well, few things I think are clearer in this account than why the flood happened in the first place. So in verse 11 of chapter 6, which Dan read, we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, and for all the people on the earth, how corrupted their ways. Uh, for, all, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. God had created a good world, a beautiful world, a pure and a kind world, but human beings had rejected God's authority over them. They'd, they'd set out on their own way, and within the space of a few chapters, a few generations, we see the world descending into chaos. The world was filled with violence. The great cause of the suffering, notice, was human beings inflicting suffering on each other. It doesn't take much imagination, I don't think, to see what Genesis 6 is talking about. You only have to turn on the television to see the kinds of things that people do to each other to see what's going on in Syria or Iraq, to see countries descending into chaos, to know the great evil that human beings are capable of once they throw off the shackles of God. A few verses earlier in chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. God has only just created the world and now he's sorry that he's made us, made us human beings. And I think if you, if you stop to think about it for a moment, you can understand the pain. Just imagine looking down on humanity and seeing every single bit of evil that we do to each other. Imagine looking down and seeing the Holocaust. Imagine looking down and seeing those two men in Sydney this past week who were plotting to cause some mayhem with a large knife in the name of IS. 
Imagine even just seeing the small betrayals that we perpetrate on each other every day. The lies that we tell to each other. The unkind words that we say that damage our relationships and tear them to pieces. People betraying their relationships by sleeping with other people or dreaming about it with the help of a computer screen or a film or a book. Imagine seeing all that. Imagine seeing every bit of it. And imagine too seeing the thoughts as well. Every bit of thought, every hateful idea, every, every scornful thought that comes into someone's head, every deceit. God was appalled not just by, by the evil in the world, what he saw people doing to each other, but the fact that every inclination of people's hearts was evil all the time. Imagine seeing that. What would you do? Here, in a sense, is the real problem of evil. God can let human beings be and watch them tear each other to pieces and watch them pull further and further away from him or he can put an end to the evil. But that means judgment and destruction. And that's exactly what happened in the days of Noah. At the risk of being profane, God is damned by popular opinion if he lets evil go unpunished. How could God let this evil happen? And God is damned by popular opinion if he does something about it. How could God cause that great evil to occur? The flood is, first of all, God's response to human evil and a reminder of the ongoing reality of human evil. But why does Noah survive? Why why does he, out of all those people in that day, survive the flood? Well, the answer to that lies in uh, God's description of Noah in chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah, we're told. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. For us as readers, uh, we're probably inclined to think that Noah, that God thought Noah was, was perfect. We'll see a little bit later that he wasn't at all perfect, not even close, really. But for early Jewish readers... Uh, The people in my growth group are probably going to be sick of me saying this, but for early Jewish readers, the word blameless is a word that would have carried massive baggage. It would have carried massive baggage because every day the sacrificial system of the Old Testament commanded people to bring blameless, spotless sacrifices to offer on their behalf to God. They were to bring these spotless animals to sacrifice in their place because they themselves weren't spotless and blameless. And every time they brought those spotless animals, they were to lay their hands on on the head of that animal and confess their sins. And they were reminded that they needed to trust that God would provide a spotless substitute to die in their place and to deal with their sin. You see, Noah wasn't a perfect man. He was a man who trusted God. He was a man who trusted in God's provision for dealing with sin, for providing a substitute for sin. He believed God's promise to Eve that one of Eve's descendants would crush Satan's head and deal with sin. Noah was a man who believed God and took God at his word. You can see that in the way that he built the ark. God said, go and build the ark, and Noah does. must have taken him years. But he believed God. Everything God told him to do, he does. 
He takes God as his word. He's not a perfect man. He's a man who clings to God. And so when the destruction comes and the judgment comes, God saves Noah. And like Noah, we don't escape the judgment of God by being great people, by being perfect people. We escape the judgment of God by trusting in God's provision for sin. In trusting in God's provision for sin in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect, the blameless, spotless sacrifice that God brought for our forgiveness. And he saves us from the wrath to come. So you might think, well, I deserve to be judged just like those people in Noah's day. I'm just as evil. Every inclination of my heart is towards evil. But the story of Noah says... What matters is not the sin in your heart, but that you trust in God's provision in Jesus Christ. And on the other side of the coin, it doesn't matter how good you are, because no matter how good you are, you aren't perfect, you aren't blameless, you aren't spotless. It's only by trusting in Jesus, in God's provision for sin on the cross, it's only by trusting in Jesus that you can escape the judgment of God against our sin. Well, the flood is, first of all, a response of God to the evil uh, of sin, of human sin, and a reminder of the ongoing reality of human evil and a reminder of how God rescues those who trust in Jesus. But the flood is not just an act of judgment. It's actually so much more than that. You see, it's not just an act of judgment. It's also an act of renewal, an act of recreation, Like so much of the Bible, the account of Noah and the ark is not just a nice little story on its own that you can kind of just hive off and read, but it's actually woven into this great fabric, which is God's work throughout history. And these chapters here in Genesis 6 to 9 are filled with the language and themes of Genesis chapter 1, the chapter that tells us about the creation of the world. So let me give you some examples. On day two of the creation, God had separated the waters above and the waters below. But in the flood, there'd kind of been a, a re-merging of those two great sources of water. So in chapter 7, verse 11, it says, On that day, all the springs of the great deep, the water below, burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, the water above. They came together again in this great cataclysm. But in 8 chapter 2 we read, after the flood, God pulls them apart again. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. On day 3 of creation, God had gathered the water that covered the earth to let the dry ground appear. And so too here in chapter 8 verse 3 we read that the water steadily receded from the earth. And then in verse 5, the waters continued to recede until the 10th month And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. God's doing again, after the flood, what he did at creation. Chapter 8, verse 15, replays the events of day 6, where God had created all the land animals and the peoples, and he told them to fill the earth. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. 
In chapter 9, verse 1, God reissues to Noah the command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. In other words, the flood is a kind of undoing of creation. But it's also a remaking of creation. It's an opportunity to start again, to start afresh, to start clean. It's like God washing the world. God takes this godly man, Noah, and he begins again with him and his family. But even that is not enough. If you've got your Bible uh, open still, look at what happens at the end of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah and from there, from them came people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Noah gets drunk. He lies around naked and dishevelled in his tent. And his son gets a kick out of it. And from there the family relationship starts to break down. Last year Fox uh, in America screened a show called Utopia where 15 people were taken away to begin a new society. Barely a few days had gone by when when divisions began began to emerge. The idea of small groups of people going away to begin a utopian community where everything will be better is not just the unique domain of a television show, reality TV show, it's the idea that stands behind all kinds of utopian communities. The idea is as old as the hills. The idea is that if you can just go away, if you can just start again, everything will be okay. If we can get away from capitalism and greedy people, if we can get away from you name it, whatever it is, it will be okay. It's what the hippies did with their communes in the the 70s. It's what the pilgrims did in going to America. And look how that turned out. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, Dan. But they were Christians leaving England and Europe in the hope of starting again and doing better in America. And, you know, it didn't work. The same problems plague American society that plagues every society in the world. It's the idea that fuels every revolution. The uprisings in the Arab Spring were supposed to herald a new democratic future for countries like Egypt. This week was the fourth anniversary... Uh, of the revolution in Egypt. And there was a depressing uh, report on NPR this week of just how little had changed in those four years. Egypt is still mired in corruption today as it was before. 
The government is violently crushing dissent. In one trial last year, 183 people were sentenced to death. In one, one trial. I was reading the other day that Lenin hoped that the Russian Revolution would signal a shift from the bureaucracy and paperwork of Tsarist Russia. But it turned out that Soviet, Soviet Russia was just as mired in paperwork as Russia had been before. In fact, it was worse. Every government election that we have here in Australia, there's the promise of a new start, a new beginning, a new political way, a new political will. And only a few months down the track, we discover that though they're wearing different coloured ties, they're the same people with the same problems. Some people try to do it with church. They try to reboot church, church 2.0. The number of books that you can find on church, and if we just do this, we just start again. New denominations, new ways, new approaches. What utopia promised on the social level other reality TV shows promise on the personal level. They offer the chance to be reborn. Home makeovers, personal makeovers, relationship makeovers, professional makeovers, celebrity makeovers. They promise a new start, a new future, a new you. But at the end of the day, the people are the same you that they were before. We deceive ourselves if we think we can just start over and everything will be different. It doesn't work. A new job, a new house, a new city, a new marriage will be the same people that we were before. It doesn't work. Humanity is the same as it has ever been. But even so, God isn't finished with the world. It's in that framework, you see, that God's promise to Noah, signified by the rainbow in the sky, that promise is so important. In chapter 9, verse 8, God says to Noah, I now establish my covenant with you. It's a, a covenant is, just, is a promise. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off from the waters of a flood and never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. When the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Humanity may be just as sinful after the flood as before, but God has not finished with the world. He has not finished with creation. And every time we see that rainbow in the sky, we're reminded that God hasn't finished with the creation. His plan is not to destroy the world and to begin again, but to make this world right. To make us right. Noah's sin didn't catch God out. He didn't kind of rescue Noah and they go, oh, I really thought that it was going to work. The fact that God promised not to destroy the world by flood 
before Noah had a chance to stuff it up, suggests that God knew that things were going to go downhill again. God's plan was never just Noah. God had a better plan, a plan that he promised to Eve. We saw that last week. A plan to do something much, much better. So the question then that the flood leaves us with is this. If starting again with a new society won't solve the problem of simple people, what will? If starting again with a new society won't solve the problem of sinful people, what will? But actually, maybe that's not the right question. You see, what if you could start again? What if you could find a man who was perfect and blameless? Not just through sacrifice, but really, genuinely perfect and blameless. And what if you started the society with that man? And what if that man could gather people to himself in such a way that he didn't leave the people as they were before? And what if that man could change people? He could really change people. He could reach down inside people and change who they were and what they did and what they loved. What if that man was the son of God? And what if he could not just remake the world out there but he could remake the world in here, inside us. In Ezekiel 36, God says to his people, I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. You see, that's the promise of the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Jesus does. It's like a little flood in your heart to wipe out sin, to destroy sin and evil and judgment. It wipes away all That's evil and rotten and revolting within us. Noah was a pretty good guy. I reckon if he was part of the church, he'd be pretty popular. But he still wasn't good enough to begin to be the beginning of a renewed humanity. And even if he had have been, his goodness couldn't have helped us. The same disease which affected him affects us all. But Jesus is perfect and blameless, and Jesus can help us. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter uses the ark as an illustration of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. He says that just as Noah trusted God and God preserved him in the ark from judgment, so if we trust in Jesus, he saves us from the judgment of God against sin. But you see, it's not that Jesus is the ark and that he rescues us. Jesus is Noah, but perfect and blameless. And God saves Jesus. And if we're with Jesus, God saves us as well. We just have to cast our lot in with Jesus and say, I'm with him. I'm in his family. 
and God saves Jesus. And because he saves Jesus, he saves us as well. And if you're not with Jesus, then nothing you do can rescue you from the judgment of God. Because salvation is where Jesus is. The flood was God's response to human evil and it was a new start. But the ultimate response to human evil and the ultimate new start is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, as we uh, think about these things, we're reminded about the depths of sin, not merely in our own world, Lord, but the depths of sin in our own hearts. And Lord, we know that, like Noah, we can't begin a new society on earth a new heaven on earth. Lord, we're mired in the same sin, the same depravity as he and everyone else in the world. And yet, Lord, we trust that in Jesus Christ you have rescued us from the coming judgment. You have gathered us to be with Jesus. And you will transform and remake and remould us in his image. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust and believe that. To cling on to Jesus with all we have. And to trust in him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.